Our scripture this morning is found in Acts again, 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and uh, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to one another as it was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Emily. I first expressed my interest, my special interest, to my wife, or at that time she wasn't my wife. I first expressed my interest in her in the lobby of the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she uh, had desired to go to Nashville to, to pursue a music uh, career in the music industry and to get some advice on how to go about that. Um, I had gone to Nashville uh, to bring a girlfriend back, and we both succeeded. She got good advice on how to go into the, the music industry, and, and I came back with a girlfriend. So it, it went really pretty well. <clears throat> uh, while we were there, uh, we had an opportunity to meet up with uh, a friend of mine who had sung with me on a worship team a number of years before, and she was living in Nashville pursuing a, a career as a singer and a songwriter. And so we went to hear her sing. She was playing at a bar in Nashville. And so uh, after her set, she invited me to come up, and I played a few songs, you know, played some, uh, a couple uh, love songs and a song about uh, loneliness and singleness, because that, that was where I'd just come from, right, was that kind of phase of life. Um, but then at the end, uh, Ruth was her name, she came back up, and, and she sang with me. We sang a worship song that we had done in Boston, a, a song called Surely the Lord, and it's based on Psalm, I, actually I can't even remember now which Psalm it's based on, but the Psalm... The psalm says, well, the chorus of the song says, Surely the Lord is my salvation. Uh, Surely the Lord is my salvation. He is my strength. He is my song. Uh, uh, Something like call on his great name. I I actually wrote the song, but I can't even remember how it goes. Uh, uh, Surely the Lord is my salvation. He is my strength. He is my song. Uh, Whatever. It was a a worship song about praising God and acknowledging our need for him. And we're singing this worship song. Um, and it was interesting to see how people in the bar responded. Uh, a, a, a number of them stopped what they were doing, whether it was hitting on the girl next, next to them, or they stopped, the, you know, put down the, their fourth or fifth beer or whatever it was that they were doing. And, and they turned and they just listened. And a number of them, you could see this look. There was a perplexing look on their face. And, but for some of them, I saw this calm coming over their faces. And I had an opportunity to talk with a number of them after them. They're like, yeah, I love going to church. I love church. It was really interesting getting into this conversation. But while we were singing a song, for a moment, it was almost as if that bar had become a church. Today, we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts called Living as Missionaries. And the the central thesis of this whole series is that is that being a missionary is not a, a special breed of Christian. Uh, it's not for the, the super Christians or something like that. You know, I, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of you, maybe you're like my mom. My mom, I think she always would have wanted to be a missionary, 
But she always thought that that meant that she would have to, to go and live somewhere where the bugs were really big and it was 103 degrees all the time. And she just wasn't cut out for that. Now, this is sort of our perception that to be a missionary, you've, you've got to go to some wild, exotic place. But, you, but what we want to see here is that that's really not necessary, that God is calling each and every one of us to live as missionaries right where we are. I mean, honestly, coming from Wyoming, New Jersey's pretty exotic, so I kind of feel like I've, I've made that big exotic leap. But we're all called, no matter, no matter where we are, no matter where we live, God calls us to, to live as missionaries right, right where we are. And so the, the, the question which I think this passage answers for us this morning is the question of what, what is the greatest tool in our missionary belt? What is the greatest tool that we have in terms of our ability to engage those around us and, and to draw them into the truth of the gospel? What is the greatest missionary tool in our belt? And, I, I, you know, I think we could say a lot. There could be a lot of different things. We might say, well, you know, it's, it's the power of our rhetoric. It's the power of our rhetoric. It's, it's the power of our ability to explain the gospel, right? It's the, it's the power of our ability to defend the gospel and to explain it in, in different contexts. And we've been talking about the importance of that. We see throughout the book of Acts that this is what's going on. Peter and Paul, that they, they, they are explaining the gospel in different contexts and in different ways, and they're defending the gospel in different ways. And, and so we, we, we might think, yeah, that, that, that's it. It's, it's the power of our rhetoric. It's our ability to explain the gospel and to defend it. I think that's a part of it, but I think this passage presses us to think that it's deeper than that. It's deeper and bigger than that. We, we, we might say that maybe uh, the greatest tool in our missionary belt um, is the power of our marketing, right? It's the power of our marketing. It's, it's, it's how well can we, <coughs> excuse me, how well can we get the word out about our church and, and, and you know, what, what strategies can we use, you know, with the internet and maybe we should focus in on Facebook. How can we use Facebook better and and, and, you know, search engine optimization, and, and, and how can we use newspaper and, 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 and you know, send out flyers, or, you know, what, and, and that, that certainly can be a part of it as well. That can be a part of it as well, but I, I think this passage encourages us to see it's, it's bigger, it's bigger than that, it's deeper than that. Uh, maybe, it's the, maybe it's the power, the greatest tool in our missionary belt is the power of um, our, our political power, right, our, our ability to, to influence uh, the laws that are passed and to influence them in ways that reflect biblical principles. And, and I think that, that, that that's good too, that that reflects a holistic understanding of what the gospel is all about. But I think this passage sort of presses a little bit deeper because there's, there's problems with all of those different um, aspects or different uh, ways in which we can approach it. We have to be careful of. If, if we focus on just on the power of our rhetoric, of our rhetoric <coughs> you know, sometimes... Uh, we, we, can, we can come across as, as if we know all the answers. Like we, we, we get to understand the Bible and the gospel so well that, man, any answer you, any question you got, you just come to me on the Bible answer, man, I got it. And, and I think that actually sometimes, you know, a lot of us are afraid of, of sharing our faith because we're afraid we won't have the answers. But sometimes I think we can have the opposite problem, that if we sound like we have too many answers, people get very suspicious of that. It can kind of come across as a, 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 an, an overconfidence we we got to be we got to be careful of that if we emphasize too much the power of our rhetoric. What about the power of our of our marketing? Well, again, I think that 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 can be used, right? God can use anything, and those are important ways of of letting people know about what's going on, and there are appropriate ways to do that. But we also have to be careful. We have to be careful that that well, because if if we don't approach it in the right way, I, I think that for some people it can seem like we're just 
you know, we're just kind of selling something like anybody else would be selling something. And so then before you know it, you know, a, a, a Good Friday service doesn't seem a whole lot different than a Black Friday sale. So we've we got to be careful about how we do that and we approach that. So there's dangers there. There's dangers. We can use it, but there's dangers there as well. And, 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 then, and then the power of our, of our politics, our political power. Well, again, there, there's a, an appropriate place for that, but I think we can also learn a lesson from ancient Israel, and that is that it doesn't really matter if you write the laws on stone tablets if they're not being written on people's hearts. So what is it? What is the greatest tool in our missionary belt? And I think that what we find right here is that the greatest tool in our missionary belt is the life of our community itself. The greatest tool in our missionary belt is the life of our community itself. What we see here in this passage is a snapshot of the early Christian community. It's interesting... Up until this point, for the most part, the book of Acts, the first two chapters, have pretty much just been a narrative. It's just been telling a story. It's been, uh, it, it's been looking at certain events and telling these events as they occurred. Here, Luke kind of pulls back and just kind of generalizes about what was going on in the Christian community. It gives us sort of a snapshot of it. It gives us a snapshot of, of the community. And, and what, what do we see? Well, the last verse... You know, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It seems like there was something about that community, something about the life of the community that was a magnet that was drawing people in. What was it? What was it about the life of the community that was was drawing people in? Well, first of all, one of the things that I think we see in this passage is that people noticed that this Christian community thing it wasn't all about religion. It wasn't just about religion. Now, certainly, you know, they, they of course, they, they went to the temple courts and they prayed. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Certainly, that, that was there. But, but what you notice in this passage, more than anything, is that they were simply living life together. They were just doing life together. Uh, in fact, the word together occurs five times, I think, just in, the, in these verses. They, they, were, they were just... Together, they were eating together, right? They were sharing meals together. They had fellowship together. Uh, they were watching football together. Well, probably not football, but they were, they were, they were just hanging out. They were just together. They were, uh, they were being generous with one another and, and sharing what they had, right? They, they were just doing life together. And so there was this, this weird thing where it, it, it seemed in some respects void of religion. What's interesting is that in the Roman culture, when they looked at the early Christians, the Christians were known as atheists. They thought the Christians were atheists because it seemed like there was, there was, there was nothing religious about them. All of the things that typically were involved in Roman religion seemed to be absent from the Christians. For one thing, they didn't have their own building. They didn't have a building. that They'd go to the temple courts, but they didn't have their own, they didn't have their own building. Uh, they, they didn't have priests. They didn't have priests to, to mediate. Uh, they, they didn't do animal sacrifice. That was a huge part of, of most of religion in, in the Roman Empire. They didn't have uh, idols. They didn't have you know, stone statues or whatever that they, they worshipped. It's like all of the things that were a part of religion, they didn't have any of it. So they, they just sort of called them atheists. 
And it seems like this, this lack of religion may have actually attracted people. I, I think that it's not just modern Westerners who are bored with religion. There's something about the religionlessness of the community that, that really drew them in. So, first of all, that it wasn't all about religion. <coughs> Excuse me. But secondly, it wasn't entirely void of religion either. It wasn't void of religion either. We see that they were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to getting together and, and, and studying the gospel. They took that very seriously. And, and, and you know, it wasn't like, well, I'm just going to fit this into my schedule whenever it's possible. No, this was something they took very seriously. They were committed to getting together and studying the Bible. They were, they, they were committed to getting together and praying for one another. And there was there was a lot of, of, of religion going on, right? They, were, they, were sort of, they had this religious dimension to what they were doing, right? So it wasn't just like, you know, just, just meaningless secularism, just kind of doing the same uh, secular things over and over again, just kind of boring secular life. I mean, they, there was still religion involved. So what was it? What was going on? What, what was it that was so unique about this community? I think what we find here is what ultimately what, what drew people in is simply this, that in the early Christian community, they were bringing heaven to earth in everything that they did. They were bringing heaven to earth in everything that they did. They weren't so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly good, Right? But they also weren't just earthly. They were bringing heaven to earth. You see, this, and this fits in with what had happened. You see, what they came to understand is that they were the temple of God. They were the people of God. They were the temple. That's why they didn't need a building, right? Because they, they were, you know, in most religions, the temple, well, that's where the spirit comes, right? But this is the whole point. What do we, what we read a couple of weeks ago about the coming of the spirit at Pentecost, it, it came upon the people. It was where they were. And so they saw themselves as the temple. They saw themselves as the place where the Spirit of God was. So they, they saw themselves in everything that they did as the intersection between heaven and earth. And, of course, that goes right back to the heart of the gospel. That's what Christmas is all about. Well, what, what do we celebrate in Christmas? We celebrate the coming of heaven to earth, them coming together and so uniquely in the person of Jesus, both God and man, this, this mysterious tension of heaven coming to earth. And then it's the very spirit that, that empowered Jesus and that rose, that rose him from the, that he was raised from the grave. That, that very spirit is what came upon the people. And so, so now, just as Jesus was both, was both divine and man, now the people of God are the intersection of heaven and earth. Now, I think about the... When I think about Christmas, I think about the gospel. I think about uh, I, Laura and I own a condominium in in uh, in Maryland, uh, uh, which we'll probably never be able to get rid of. Uh, if somebody wants to buy something for way under market value, please let me know. If you'd like to do that, but we own this condo, and and I bought it before we were married. And when uh, when we finally got it, and and Laura and I were dating, and I went to move in, and the person who had owned it previously just did not clean it at all. It was pretty trashed. And so I wasn't actually around conveniently the weekend when we were, uh, I was able to move in. So Laura and my mom went and cleaned. And, and they went in and they cleaned it up. And, and I think in many ways that's what the gospel is. That Jesus came and he moved in to this earth, this messy world. 
He moved into the, to the mess of your life and the mess of my life, and he came to clean it up, and it just lived there. Right? He brought heaven to earth. And so, so the early Christians, again, what did they saw themselves as the very place where heaven and earth intersect? Another way of saying that is they saw that in everything that they were doing, they were consecrating the secular. They were consecrating the secular. They would consecrate the secular. To consecrate something means to set it aside as holy or to make it holy. And so they they saw themselves that in everything that they were doing, they were consecrating the secular. You see, what religion tends to do is separate the sacred from the secular. We separate these two. So you've kind of got your sacred times, right? You come to church, put on your church clothes, you pray, you, you do all that. right? Then after the benediction... It's all over, you go home, you watch football. Right? Sacred and secular. But, but what we see going on in the early church is that they, 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 were, they were bringing these together and they were consecrating the secular. Um, you, you see, we can have, I think, uh, three approaches to the world. There are three approaches that we can have. We can abstain from the world, we can desecrate the world, and we can consecrate the world. We can abstain, we can desecrate, or we can consecrate. Abstain. We can abstain from the world. The world's, the world's a bad thing. The world's terrible. Get out. Stay away. Do everything that you can to be uh, away from the world. Um, desecrate. Well, what does that mean? Well, to, to desecrate is to make something unholy. And so really what that's talking about is allowing, allowing, uh, allowing the world to influence you in such a way that, that you end up desecrating it. Okay, so l- let, me, um, let me kind of put it a, a, another way. Um, nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. Um, nothing is neutral. That everything that we do, um, we are either consecrating it um, or we are desecrating it. And everything that we do, there's, there's, there's nothing that's neutral. So uh, when you go to work, you are either consecrating it or you are desecrating it. You are either doing it, you are either working for the glory of God or you're working for something else. Now, it can be a mix, right? The human heart is a, is a mixture, right? So it's not always one or the other, but it's never neutral. You see, it's, 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 it's always, it could be both because we're all kind of a mixed bag, right? But you're either, it's either consecrating it for the glory of God or, or it's desecrating it. It's for something else. Uh, sex is the same way. Sex, right? It's, anytime somebody engages in sex, it's never neutral. You're either consecrating or desecrating. It's either, it's either an act of commitment to that person or it's something less than it's just about yourself and, and, and whatever. It's, it's, it's never neutral. So uh, another way of saying this um, <clears throat> is that in everything that we do, we're always worshiping something. You're always worshiping something. Uh, James K.A. Smith, who's a Christian philosopher at Calvin College, he talks about how we are, um, at our very core, desiring creatures. And basically, what worship is, is you worship the thing that you desire the most. That's really what worship is. It's, you worship the thing that you desire the most. And so what he talks about is how uh, we are, at our very core, desiring creatures. He's a philosopher, right? So he's like, it's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I desire 
therefore I am. That's like the fundamental category. It's not even that we think, it's that we desire. And so in everything that we do, we are desiring, and the ultimate thing that you desire the most is the thing that you worship. So he's saying in everything that you do, you're worshiping something. And he does this little experiment to to kind of highlight how everything that we do is worship. All people, everybody, everything that you're doing is worship. And he, he kind of paints this picture. He says, if a Martian anthropologist came to earth, uh, and sort of studied our, our behavior, uh, the Martian would, would, would probably not see a whole lot of difference between the rituals and the practices of going to the mall. Wouldn't see any difference between that and the rituals and practices that are embodied, embodied in going to church. There's, there's, there's both, it's worship in, in both ways. We are desiring creatures who, who worship. And so in everything that you do, you're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. When you're worshiping God and what you're doing, well, then you're consecrating that thing. And when you're, when you're worshiping something else, well, then you're, you're desecrating it. So what, is, what does it look like to consecrate the secular? I think we can unpack this even a little bit deeper from what we see in this passage. <clears throat> I think that what it means to consecrate the secular is that in everything that we do, we are either loving God or loving our neighbor, or both. In everything that we do, we are either loving God, or we are loving our neighbor, or both. That's how you consecrate something. You're either loving God, you're loving your neighbor, or both. And I think this is what we find in this passage. Kind of unpack what's going on here. There's really two things going on here. This community, this community life, they're loving God and they're loving their neighbor. They're loving God. They're, they're desiring him. They're getting together and they're studying the apostles' teaching. They want to learn more about God. They're, they're praying. They're seeking God. They're loving God. They're getting together for worship, right? So they're, they're loving God. But then what else are they doing? They're also meeting together. They're meeting together and, and, and being with one another. And everything that they're doing there is, is, is a matter of loving one another, right? It's, it's, it's either loving God or loving their neighbor. They're being generous with one another. This whole picture, it's these two things. It's all they're doing. They're either loving God or loving their neighbor or both. And in so, in doing that, they are consecrating the secular. So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's do a couple of case studies here. What might this look like in our practical daily lives? Just use a couple. I'll use an example like the, a recent example. Halloween. Halloween. What should a Christian perspective be towards Halloween? Again, there's three things that we could do. We can abstain, right? Abstain from Halloween, right? It's about evil spirits and processed candy. I'm not sure which is worse, right? We, we abstain, from, abstain from Halloween. Get out, right? Uh, we can desecrate Halloween. And I think what it means to desecrate Halloween is to engage in it uncritically to engage in it uncritically. And so, you know, th- this is where you're, well, I'll give you an example. When I engaged in it uncritically, I'm like, I'm like 12 years old, and I eat my entire bag of unprocessed candy, and I throw up all night, right? That's not thinking critically. That's not consecration. That's desecration, right? It's, it, so desecration is not thinking critically. Uh, I, just the other, uh, well, whenever it was, a few weeks ago, Laura and I took our kids to, I think it was DePiro's. They had like a little, uh, a little maze for kids, little little kids' maze. Uh, and they had, um, you know, you'd, you'd go in and there's Elmo. And the guy dressed up as Elmo. And then you'd go a little bit farther into the maze. And, and then there's SpongeBob, right? And, 
And I mean, my kids, like, when they saw Elmo, there was no way we were getting out of there without taking them through this maze. Uh, so, you know, anyway. But well, as it turns out, this kid's maze was a kid's maze by day and a haunted house by night. Um, and they didn't really thoroughly de-haunt it uh, for the kid's maze. So we're going in, and there's Elmo. Oh, my gosh, Elmo. My kids, they hug Elmo. And then we turn the corner, and there are four decapitated heads hanging from nooses with blood dripping down. Right? So I, in a state of emergency, I consecrated the situation. Right? I covered up the heads. I pushed them aside. The kids would walk by. I covered their eyes Every, everywhere we were going. I mean, I was, I, I was not going to let them turn the corner and see that guy from Hellraiser. I just wasn't going to let it happen. Right? That's thinking critically about it. How else can we consecrate? How else can we consecrate Something like Halloween. Well, uh, Carol Thies and my wife were setting up a display in the lobby advertising Trunk or Treat. And it was a Halloween, you know, they they had a little spooky Halloween tree. And they asked me, they said, what can we put on it? Can we put spiders and witches? Can we put those on there? And I said, well, I said, yeah, we can do that. But let's put verses of scripture in the tree as well that talk about Jesus driving out evil spirits. Let's put verses up there that, that talk about how Jesus has complete victory over the powers of darkness. You see, that's consecrating the secular. That's taking that holiday and saying, hey, we can celebrate this. And what we can celebrate is that God has complete victory over spiders. I need, I need to hear that one. Uh, complete victory over spiders, over the powers of darkness. That's loving God. See, we're loving God. That's, that's, that's actually devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, but doing it in the everyday stuff of life. How else? How else can we consecrate something like Halloween? Well, that's what Trunk or Treat was all about. Trunk or Treat was all about consecrating that event. What did we do? We used it as a way to love our neighbors by, by welcoming others in and, and saying, hey, come, we want to just bless our community. Right? And in doing that, you see, we're, we're consecrating the secular. This is what the early Christian community did. They saw themselves as being the intersection between heaven and earth. They saw themselves as in everything that they do, they would consecrate, they would consecrate the secular. That's Halloween. Okay, well, what about, well, let's just take a look at um, the breaking of bread uh, or, that, or just the, the concept of, well, here's what I'm getting at here. We notice here in, <coughs> in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the, t- to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, there's something interesting about that phrase, the breaking of bread. There's significant scholarly debate uh, about what that's referring to. Uh, is it referring to just, you know, getting together and having a meal? Um, or is it referring to the Lord's Supper, to communion? And, of course, the debate itself, you see, the very fact of the debate points to what's really going on here. The reason why it's so ambiguous is precisely because they were consecrating everything. You see, and actually it it comes in the second century, this phrase, breaking of the bread, became a technical term for communion. But it's kind of unclear in the first century what it really meant. Um, Most scholars think that it really isn't talking about that. Of course, we do discover in the New Testament they did set aside a specific day uh, and a specific meal that was for communion, the Lord's Supper, but it was, it was, see, the lines were being blurred because there was a sense in which although they would, they would have communion, a specific, an extra sacred time of communion, there was a sense in which every meal was a communion meal. 
Every meal was a time to remember what God had done. And so think about that for us. When we have our meals, I mean, you know, we, we take communion once a month, but there's a sense in which every meal can be a communion meal. It can be a time of celebrating what God has done. That's what saying grace is all about. That's what blessing our food, that's what that's all about. You know, if nothing else, I would like to maybe reinstill what's the reason why we pray before a meal. Let's not let that just be some sort of religious ritual that we just do. We don't really know why. It's because we believe that, that, that in, in doing so, we're bringing heaven to earth. We're, we're, consecrating, we're consecrating the secular, right? So, so again, let's, let's look at this whole idea of, of having a meal. And again, there are three things that you can do when you have a meal. Three ways you can approach it. You can abstain, you can desecrate, and you can consecrate. You can abstain, right? And, and, and this, is, this is where you say, you know, things like uh, alcohol is evil, uh, non-organic is evil, uh, you know, uh, whatever. All of these things are, are evil. You know, you just, maybe you should just go, you know, live on a mountaintop and, and just drink water or something like that, right? Because it's, it's evil. Stay away from it. Abstain from it, right? Or we can desecrate it. We can desecrate it, and there it's to think uncritically about how we approach something like eating. And then, then we're not thinking critically about how much we're drinking or how much we're eating, or we're not thinking critically about the health effects that something might have on us. But that would be to desecrate it, to think uncritically about it. But to consecrate it is to say that in everything that we do, even in eating of the meal, this is all for the glory of God. And one of the things that you'll find is that the more you take that approach to something like eating food, it'll help you with maybe some of the challenges that we might have. It'll help you. If you're really giving this for the glory of God, then you're going to be careful to not do it in a way that's, that's going to hurt you or, or, or whatever. So, so it's, it's consecrating. It's, it's taking this and saying everything that we do is for the glory of God. Money. Well, we'll just look at this briefly because they talk about, we're going to talk more about money uh, next week. But what's our approach to money? Well, you can abstain from it. You can be like, wow, you know, money's evil. You know, if you get a bonus check, don't tell anybody because you really shouldn't make a lot of money. Uh, right? Money's evil, right? Or you can desecrate it. You can think uncritically about it. You can just use it for yourself and for your own purposes. Right? Or you can consecrate it. You can consecrate your use of money and, and, and realize, well, what does it mean to consecrate that? Well, it's... It's saying, you know, this isn't even mine to begin with. I'm just a steward of this. And that means I'm, I'm going to share it. I'm going to share it with others. Right? That's, 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 that's consecrating what's holy in all of these things, right? So there's, there's, there's loving God and loving our neighbors. Go, going back to sharing a meal. I've already said you can consecrate that by, again, praying and thanking God for what you have. But you can also consecrate it how else? It's not just loving God. It's also loving your neighbor. So now you can use a meal to welcome other people in. Invite people over to your house. Invite them over to share a meal. Just doing that is consecrating the secular. It's taking just some regular mundane thing and making it holy by loving your neighbor, loving your God, and loving your neighbor. And it seems like this is what was so attractive. This is what drew people in. It was the life of the community that in everything that they were doing, they were loving God and they were loving their neighbor. So I I, want to... I want to challenge us as a church, challenge us as a church, as individuals, and even with our community groups, uh, what are some practical ways in which we can consecrate the secular? 
What are some things that, that, that you can do? What, what are ways in which you can, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one way in which we can consecrate the secular, right? Our tendency is to, sec, uh, to separate the sacred from the secular. This is just one way, and I want to be careful. This is the whole point where I, I want to give you the principles and then let you apply them, because if I give them to you, then we can form a new sort of legalism, right? This is the danger here. Now, I'm going to apply it practically, and then you're like, oh, gosh, I have to do that, or I'm not a good Christian. That's not the point. You, you, you figure out how God is leading you. But here's, here's what I'm getting at. We separate the sacred from the secular. Here's one way in which we could merge those. We could merge those, and you could consecrate the secular. Is after church, right, uh, go home and talk about the sermon with your family. Again, what do we usually do? We, we, we go to church. We, okay, we worship God. Thank you. We learn. And then we go home, and then that's it. We're done, right? Then we just watch TV or whatever we do. What if you went home and, and talked about it with your family? Maybe you talked about it while you're watching football. So you're, you're bringing these things together. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to make a new law. There's all kinds of ways in which we can integrate these things. So I want to encourage you to think about that. What are ways in which you can consecrate the secular in your, in your own life? What, what, what are ways in which you can use the things that you do to love God and to love your neighbor? Again, maybe it's, maybe it's inviting people to come join you in the things that you're doing inviting them to go on a hike with you, inviting them to watch football with you. Maybe it's uh, praying when you go hiking. You know, you don't just have to pray before meals. You can pray before anything. You can pray in the middle of meals. You can pray at the end of meals, right? This, there's, there, let's not get legalistic about how it's supposed to be done. Just find ways to bring all of these things together, bring the sacred and secular together in everything that we do. What can your community groups look to do? What can your community groups look to do? Maybe if you have a party, your community group can take that party and say, hey, we're going to invite other people. We're going to reach out. <laughs> and, to, <coughs> excuse me, and taking that party, you're consecrating the secular by loving, by loving your neighbor. What was so attractive about the early church? What was the greatest tool in their missionary belt? It was the life of their community. That they were bringing heaven to earth in everything that they did. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you that you have come for us. We praise you that you've given us the opportunity to be used by you. So God, I pray that you would be working in our hearts and our minds right now, each one of us, and seeing, opening up our eyes to ways in which we can embody this um, in, our, in our own lives and in our own communities. God, I pray that we would, we would see that you really are everywhere. Your spirit is present in us, and that we would acknowledge that, and that we would live life out of that reality. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.